to the next tower and that would be relayed on tower to tower until it got to London. 200 miles away. Captain Calder was striving to transmit the assurance of the victory. And so he began his message. Wellington defeated, but just then a heavy fog rolled in. Interrupting the message, the bank of fog continued to shroud the port for most of the day. And meanwhile, though, those two words, Wellington defeated, were relayed from tower to tower all the way to London. And when the people of London heard that the Duke of Wellington had been defeated, they panicked. Businessmen sold their government bonds, fortunes were lost. Back in Plymouth, the fog lifted. And Captain Calder was able to complete his message. Wellington defeated the French. And immediately despair turned to celebration. You see, the victory was assured. Yet, because of how the fog had interrupted the message, the people were feeling defeated. They didn't feel victorious. So in many ways, the battle had continued to rage on. <coughs> so it is with you and me. Jesus has won the victory. Satan is a defeated foe. However, our vision in many ways is obscured and there are still many battles, many enemies that we need to face. And it's now more important than ever that we do not surrender to panic or despair. Our Lord, we are told, is going to return like a thief in the night. That one thing that Jesus said Himself, 
makes me very suspicious of anybody who comes up with charts and plans and ways to tell when the Lord's going to return. Jesus said He would return like a thief in the night. And so the message of Scripture, the consistent message, is that you and I need to be vigilant. We need to be prepared. We need to be faithful. Now, we're told to say the vision that we're going to look at today follows by two years the one we looked at last Sunday. That was in chapter 7. This vision is dated to the third year of Belshazzar's reign. Again, we're still not up to where chapter 6 ended with chapter 8. It goes back in time. And that's important because a lot of people somehow have missed that. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. In other words, a second vision. Neither Daniel nor Babylon are important to the context. The vision is dependent on what we saw last Sunday in chapter 7. This vision is set in Susa, one of the great cities of the Persian Empire. It's a little over 200 miles from Babylon, where chapter 7's vision occurred. And it seems that Daniel was in Susa only in terms of the vision. The UI was an artificial canal that passed by Susa on the northeast. The metals and the beasts had been replaced by a ram, a goat, and a king with a bold face. Also, instead of four nations with a conquering kingdom, we have just two represented by a man, a ram, and a goat. But we also have the little horn that comes up. Now, before we start digging in, I want to go once again to the end of the chapter, just like I did last Sunday. Chapter 8 begins very similar to the way, or ends very similar to the way chapter 7 ended. It ends, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. I don't think I need to repeat it. But it's so different than the excitement of a minister in Arizona whose recent sermon on Daniel 8 was titled A Frightening Vision of a Present Day Kingdom. With an unusual twist, that minister agrees with our identification of the little horn being the Seleucid king Antiochus IV, which we're going to come back to. But he will force his interpretation to somehow get to the Antichrist and the tribulation of the last days by saying, so I believe that while Antiochus partially fulfilled prophecies, a complete fulfillment is still there at the, end, at the time of the end. How does he manage it? And in a very excited tone, he actually devises, and I quote, 
an awakened Seleucid Empire. Something that's not even mentioned in the Bible, by the way, nor in history. And he does that so that he can identify the little horn with the Antichrist. Well, let's read Daniel 8 and see what actually is said. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. I saw in the vision when I was, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of the Mom. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat came and had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran up at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was engaged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. <laughs> then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw the truth, it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there, was, there stood before me one having the voice, appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word. The prophet.
problem for the minister that I mentioned and a problem for many others is Gabriel's use of the phrase the vision is for the time of the end. That particular minister's understanding of the appointed time of the end is not the end of the period of wrath that is presented in the vision. The destruction of the rebellious, evil king, symbolized by the small horn. No, for him and for many others, the text is tweaked, it's stretched, it's added to in order to apply it to some period of tribulation that brings in the final judgment. Now listen to me. How can anyone say that the slaughter of Christians daily in places like India, Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, and I could go on. How can anybody say that that is not a horrible tribulation? Try to explain to those people that they're not living in the great tribulation. Not only that, but Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and several other passages, by the way, say that we are, we are living in the last days. And Hebrews was written a long time ago. And there is no mention of the Antichrist in this vision. Or in Daniel, for that matter. Sometimes I wonder how many Christians actually know that the term Antichrist is found in only four verses in the entire Bible. And all four verses are in John's letters. 1 John 2.18, 2.22, 4.3, and 2 John 7. The only four times Antichrist is mentioned in the entire Bible. Yes, not in Revelation. Now, I'll be the first to agree that the idea underlying an Antichrist is widespread since the prefix anti simply suggests opposition to Christ. But listen carefully to what John says in 1 John 4, 1-3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Did you hear that? John, in about 90 to 100 AD, says the Antichrist is already in the world. So what's Daniel writing about in chapter 8? Gabriel addresses Daniel as the Son of Man. And that stands in contrast to man of God to remind Daniel that he is a human who is weak and to inform him though that even in his weakness he is deemed worthy to receive such a divine revelation. The foundation 
the basis for the summons that's given to him, a summons to understand, a summons to take heed of, relates directly to the time of the end. And the urgency of Gabriel's message necessitates that it's not a reference to the end of all history, but a nearer and relative end, the end of the prophecy. Now, one of the things that I think you need to know uh, is that time of the end, that phrase, is a very general prophetic expression for the period of time, the fulfillment of the time that lies at the end of an existing era or even a prophetic horizon. Which in this passage would be referring to the time of the little horn. By the way, did you once again notice how brief the description of the two animals is, the ram and the doe? Again, only 246 words describing them. And yet books have been written with many, many pages trying to identify these so that men like the minister down in Arizona can come up with a message that says a vision that deals with a present kingdom. You're reasonable people. How much sense would it make for Daniel or for John with Revelation to be spending extensive time talking about things that were going to happen thousands of years later when the people right there in front of them, each, both of them, were undergoing harsh, strict, very intensive tribulation and punishment. Those books would have been useless to the ones they were being written to. That's why we're given both the description and the identification of the two-horned ram. If we would have continued reading in verses 20 to 22, we're told, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. It's identified. We don't have to go beyond that. And we know from history that Persia was stronger than Media, explaining why the one horn was taller. It was a divided kingdom. With divided power. And in rapid fire, he quickly follows with the identification of the one horned goat. Verse 21 And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And Daniel's told specifically the goat is the king of Greece, the first king, which would have been Alexander the Great. And the description follows in terms of how quickly he advanced across the known world at that time, conquering the entire world. Again, and I think this is important, there have been many who have believed that this vision is so accurate that the book of Daniel had to have been written much later 
than the 6th century BC as we believe it to have been. Some of them well dated into the 400 BC, the area of Alexander the Great, because of the specificity and how it applied to history. Others won't even date until 186 or 168 to 164, which was the time of the restructuring of the temple and Antiochus Epiphanes and, and, and that historical period. I even read one guy who identified it as being written in 70 AD. Now, I don't know what he did about the translation that occurs in 200 BC. Uh, that would present a problem to me to say it was written in 70 AD when we know it was translated into another language in 200 BC. But anyway, they tried to date it that late because of how accurate these visions are. As we know from history, Alexander's kingdom was broken into four kingdoms following his death. And none of them ever attained his power. But this, the story is just moving rapidly through history. And verse 23 says that Daniel was told of how at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall rise. Again, we need to read carefully. When in verse 19 it speaks of the latter end of the indignation, the end of the period of wrath, it's the same as in verse 23 when it speaks of the latter end of their kingdom when the transgressors have reached their limit. What we're told in verses 18 to 22 clearly identifies the time of wrath as God's verdict on those who are rebelling against Him and failing to repent. Daniel may rest assured that there is a time appointed for the end of these earthly kingdoms, especially Antiochus' rebellion, which would be followed by the vindication of the sanctuary, the temple. Everything we know about Antiochus Epiphanes matches the identification of the small horn that grew as revealed in the text. Now what's important is to realize that the conflict between the ram and the goat, that's just a prelude. The focus of chapter 8 is on this small horn of verse 9, Antiochus Epiphanes. So we have... The two-horned two ram, Medo-Persia, 539 B.C. to 330 B.C. when Greece arises. And notice, 330 to only 323 for Alexander. But then the four horns. And one of those four horns was the Seleucid kingdom out of which Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, would come. By the way, you can read all about it in a very good intertestamental book, not believed to be inspired by the churches, but very important historically, known as 1 Maccabees. And you can also read it in the historical writings of a person who wasn't a Christian, a man named Josephus in his Antiquities. The horn comes out of one of the four horns of verse 8, the horn grows in several directions and, at least in his own mind, grew until he had reached the host of the heavens. 
Daniel sees that horn grow so great in height that he's able to reach the stars with his hands and throw some of the stars down to the ground and trample on them? What's that mean? Well, we're told what it means. Verse 24, the angel says that the stars are to be understood as the people of God. This isn't enigmatic. This isn't something we have to devise charts and schemes and all of that for. We just need to read the Bible. The horn also raised up its power against the Prince of Hosts, namely God Himself. For example, in chapter 8, verse 12, we're told that the little horn will throw truth to the ground. First Maccabees gives us the historical content. It says, the books of the law which they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. And where the book of the covenant was found in the possession of anyone, or if anyone adhered to the law, the decree of the king in Titus Epiphanes condemned them to death. Secondly, Antiochus was, was opposed to God by forbidding the permanent practices of worship and desecrating the place of worship, the sanctuary. Have you ever heard the phrase, the desecration that causes abomination? Well, it comes right from Daniel's vision. And it comes from the history of Antiochus Epiphanes, who in fact ordered that an altar to Olympian god Zeus would be erected in the temple on God's altar. One last thing regarding this identification that's in the second half of the chapter that I didn't read. You can go back and read it. In verse 20, excuse me, in verse 24 and 25, we're told that when the transgressions have reached their limit, a king of old face, one who understands riddles, shall arise, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. But his cunning he shall make, by his cunning he shall make the seed prosper under his hand and in his own mind he'll become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even give rise against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Again, Second Maccabees, this time, chapter 9, gives a gruesome account of the death of Antiochus. He was first seized with sharp internal pain and torture. He actually fell out of his chariot and the fall was so hard that it broke every limb or injured every limb in his body. And finally, verse 9 of 2 Maccabees 9, his flesh literally rotted away while he was living. <clears throat> Further, the number were given, verses 13 and 14 of Daniel 8, where the two angels are conversing and the one says how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? Directed toward Daniel, he said to me, the answer, 2300 evenings and mornings. That happens to be about six years and four months. Six years and four months is the length of time of Antiochus' reign of terror in Palestine. 
<laughs> Bottom line. The end point is the same. All things are pointing to when the sanctuary will be reconstructed. The light at the end of the tunnel. And verse 14 is thus predicting the rededication of the temple by Judas Maccabeus that took place on December the 14th, 164 B.C. And that, my friends, is what is celebrated with Hanukkah. So, here's what I see to be the challenge that I think we need to learn from Daniel. First of all, we can't allow ourselves to be lulled into a false sense of security. Haven't we learned from two world wars, Korea, Vietnam, the Middle East conflicts, hasn't there been enough economic disasters such as the Great Depression and additional economic disasters? We have no reason to have any confidence in the inevitability of human progress. The sayings, whatever, to each his own, those could be models of our time. Preference has replaced objective truth. We tend to define reality as we choose. And yet, where the belief in human progress once reigned, now, Human misery shapes the outlook of the future. Suspicion, mistrust, insecurity, those have replaced most, if not all, utopian dreams. 49,449. 49,449 Americans died by suicide in 2022. That even exceeds the number of deaths on the highway, which was another high last year, 42,795. But 40... 9,449 is the highest number of suicides ever recorded in one year. You see, as in the day of Antiochus, truth has indeed been thrown to the ground. And the pervasive influence of sin makes almost any discussion of an earthly utopia, an ideal society, an absurdity. Back in August the 6th, 2001, Time Magazine, Roger Rosenblatt, an essayist, wrote these things. It's a lengthy quote, but I think you need to hear it. What I do know is that the world is a pitiless and dangerous place. In 20 years of observing portions of it, I have seen or seen the aftermath of children blown apart by car bombs in Beirut. Kindergartners slaughtered in a schoolroom in Israel. Hundred young men dying of starvation in Sudan. Other young men and women hacked to death with machetes in Rwanda. Their bodies hoisted like logs over waterfalls and carried into muddy rivers. Still others decapitated in Cambodia with kids forced to do the decapitating. This is what people will do to one another. Given who they are and their individual circumstances, they will do absolutely anything to one another. 
The accumulation of this knowledge leaves one revolted, heartbroken, and in some way amazed. But it does not leave one with much to say. And he ends that writing with, Come, Lord Jesus. Secondly, the only hope that you and I can have is to know that God will ultimately destroy all opposition to Himself. The focus on the little horn in this chapter to which the roles of the greater empires of the ram and the goat are secondary is a vivid reminder of the distinct biblical perspective. The focus of our Scriptures is not so much on the great empires but on God's covenant people. The family of God is the key to history. The ultimate significance of empires and their rulers is determined by their treatment of humanity. Or how they're treating orphans, widows, and especially their concern for the unborn. And returning to where we began in verse 28, Daniel's reaction to his vision I think it's very instructive. I cannot stress strongly enough that we are in a battle with evil each and every day. <coughs> this summer I told the kids who were baptized. I told some of the campers that I could before they left. <coughs> if you had a good week, if you've committed your life to Christ, know one thing that when you get off of this campground, Satan is going to do everything he can to attack you and get you to change what you have decided. We're in a battle. This world is under the control of the evil one. Jesus said it Himself three different times. Yes, the victory has been won in Christ's resurrection. However, the seriousness of the conflict in which God's people are to be involved and in which we are involved overwhelmed and appalled Daniel. But notice, it didn't paralyze him. Even in an ungodly environment, he says, I went back and went about the king's business. He fulfilled his daily responsibilities. You see, we cannot feel defeated because God is still on the throne. We cannot feel defeated because others are going to be looking to us in terms of, as Peter said, explain to them the reason for the hope that you have within you. Yes, times are tough. But God is good. Let's pray. Father God, help us. Help us to realize that You have given us lessons from history so that we can know how to respond in the present. Help us to realize that Satan is powerful, but he's not all powerful. And that we can resist Him with truth. That 
whenever we are tempted, your Son promised us that there is a way of escape. Help us to seek that out. Help us to be students of your Word so that we can know. Just as Jesus Himself, when He was tempted, He quotes Scripture. The Scripture says, the Scripture says. Help us to realize it doesn't matter what we think if our thinking and our feelings do not align with your Word. Help us to be people of the book and be overcomers. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Our hymn of commitment today is going to be wider than snow. It's number 374.